Thank you, Ken. When uh, Troy mentioned that date, I racked my brain trying to figure out where I was. <laughs> what the event was, I didn't remember. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's the first week I was here. <laughs> Time has really flown, though, hasn't it? It's hard to believe it. Uh, it's been six years. Uh, also, next week, if you are a new member, we hope that you will uh, attend that luncheon. It's a free luncheon, and it's where we give you all the information about the class. We explain how it runs, who, what the care groups are, who the presidents are, vice presidents, the council, and all this kind of stuff. And it's a very important meeting, and it's a great time just to get to know everybody. Well, we are in the Gospel of Luke. So take your Bible and open up to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And if you've been with us throughout our study of Luke, you know these first three chapters deal with John the Baptist and Jesus. First, we have the announcement that John's going to be born, then the announcement that Jesus is going to be born. And it goes back and forth. And it goes back and forth several times up through chapter 3. Last week, we started at chapter 3, verse 1, and we saw how John began his public ministry of baptism in the wilderness, and how he challenged many of the people who came to be baptized to show some sort of evidence of repentance or he wouldn't baptize them. Now, this week we're going to look at Jesus' baptism, which is found in John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And then beginning in verse 23 through 38, you'll notice a genealogy. It's a very confusing genealogy. And uh, we're going to, I'm going to try to explain why we have this genealogy here and why, why it follows the baptism of Jesus. Even the issue of why Jesus had to be baptized since he wasn't a sinner is very confusing, isn't it? And we're going to probably touch upon that, although Luke doesn't mention it. He doesn't tell us why. So if we... Venture a guess, that's all it is. It's a, it's a guess. It's a conjecture. But let me read verses 21 and 22 to you. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now, this is a two-verse account of Jesus' baptism. It's probably the shortest of the three gospel writers who deal with the subject. And, but in these verses, there's a lot, lot mentioned. It says that he was baptized. That's the main thing in verse 21. But three events accompany his baptism, and I want you to see those. At the end of verse 21, the heaven was opened. That's event number one. Verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended. And event number three, a voice came from heaven. Three things accompany his baptism. <coughs> heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended, and a voice came from heaven. These three events are modified by other statements. They're elaborated upon. For example, it says in verse 21, while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And then verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended. But it adds, in bodily form like a dove upon him. And then the voice came from heaven, 
But the voice said something. It said, you are my beloved son, in you I'm well pleased. So what we're going to try to do is we're going to go over these statements and we're going to try to figure it all out. So let's look at verse 21, okay? First of all, I want you to notice it says this. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. Now this does not mean that Jesus was in a line waiting to get baptized. And he was at the end of the line, and then when everybody was baptized first, then he took his turn. That's what it would appear to mean if you were just reading the sentence. But that's not what it means. Luke is trying to tell us that Jesus' baptism is the culmination of John's ministry. After Jesus is baptized, John falls by the wayside. He's not even mentioned in the Gospel of Luke again. Jesus' ministry picks up, and we're not going to go back and forth, back and forth between chapters again, between John and Jesus' ministry. So what, he's, what he wants us to understand is that Jesus' baptism is the culmination of John's baptism, and John decreases and Jesus Christ increases. Now remember how uh, Luke left John in the previous verse. Look at verse 20 about John. It says that uh, Herod shut John up in prison. Remember that? Chapter 3 says that John was baptized, and then suddenly Luke just jumps ahead, jumps, jumps way ahead and just says, and by the way, he was put in prison, they locked him up. And then in verse 21, there's a flashback. We have John again at the river baptizing. He goes back again. Why is he doing that? Well, he's doing it to let us know that when John was baptizing, he baptizes Jesus, and at that point, John's ministry is finished. In fact, uh, let me just jump ahead and tell you that he, he ended up in prison. And you're not going to hear about John again, except one time, and then he's still in prison. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up with the ministry of Jesus. That's the important thing. Everything else is inconsequential about John. Now, why is Jesus baptized? It says in 3.3 3, that John baptized for repentance for remission of sin. Obviously, Jesus isn't a, center, a sinner. So, but Luke doesn't tell us why John baptizes him. We know from another gospel that John doesn't want to baptize him. Remember, he says, I have need to baptize me, not me baptizing you. And remember what Jesus' answer was? He says we need to do this so that we can fulfill all righteousness. He doesn't say that I can fulfill all righteousness. There are a lot of commentaries, so Jesus had to be baptized because he had to do a certain thing, and the baptism represented his death and his resurrection, and he had to do this. No, he didn't say that. He said, he said you have to baptize me that we, you, John, and I might fulfill all righteousness. There's a thing that has to get done, and it includes my baptism. Because, you see, John's baptism was not just baptizing sinners. John's main ministry was to prepare the way for who? The Lord. And he had to baptize the Messiah and launch him out on his public ministry. John had a work to do, and so did Jesus. And in doing that, and in completing the baptism, they're going to fulfill all righteousness. So, baptism was very important, and we're going to see why. Now, look at verse 21 again, and it says this. 
It says he was baptized, and then it says this, and while he prayed, the heaven was open. So when was heaven opened? When he prayed. So this indicates that heaven being opened, by the way, which is mentioned several times in Scripture, in Ezekiel 1.1, it says, and the heavens were rent, or the heavens were opened. It says it in, John, in Acts 7. And it says it six or seven times, and the heavens were opened. When the heavens are open, that's God breaking into time, and that's God revealing himself. It's a revelation. Well, here it says the heavens were opened while he prayed. And so what we would say is this his, heaven being open and God breaking into time is a result of Jesus praying. It's a response to Jesus' prayer. Now, we don't know what Jesus' prayer is. But whatever it was, it got a response. And God breaks in. And he's going to reveal something. Now look at verse 22. Verse 22, which is the second event. And when heaven was open, watch this. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. Now what does this mean, the Holy Spirit descended upon him? Didn't he already have the Holy Spirit? Wasn't John filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth? What makes it so special if the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus? Well, this is a different giving of the Holy Spirit. This is what, I'm going to use a big word here, okay? And then I'll try to explain it. This is called the eschatological giving of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament prophet said that God was going to do something at the end of the age. And he was going to start a new eschatological period, which is a... a a period that's going to bring in the kingdom of God. That was called the eschatology. Eschatology is a study of the end times. You've heard of that. The eschaton was the last times. And God was said that through the prophets that when he ushered in the kingdom, you would know when the kingdom would be ushered in because he would give the Holy Spirit. And so here the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And this is what's going to identify Jesus as the Messiah. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, and that identifies him as the Messiah who will usher in the kingdom of God. And then on the day of Pentecost, what happens? Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit upon the believers, and they become part of the kingdom. So this is a giving of the Holy Spirit that rests upon Jesus. Now notice it says... It rested upon him, and it came upon him in a certain kind of form, in verse 22. It says, like a dove. Now, what's the significance of the dove coming upon Jesus? In Genesis, it says, and the Spirit of God, watch this, hovered hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so the Spirit of God hovered like a bird before there was creation over, over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so the Spirit of God hovering speaks of creation. The second time you see the dove in the Old Testament, it's very interesting, it has to do with the flood. The first time the Spirit of God hovers over what? Water. Water. 
The second time, the Spirit of God has to do with what? Water, the flood. And Noah and his family get in the ark. Forty days are in the ark. And then suddenly the dove comes back with an olive branch between its beak, which speaks of peace. Now, in each one of those cases, after the Spirit hovers over the face of the water of the deep in Genesis, then God creates Adam and Eve, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and repent and lineage the earth and take control of the earth, rule the earth. In the flood, guess what God does? Judges the earth. He wipes out the earth. But he leaves one family. You know what he says to them? The same thing he said to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Have dominion over the earth. Rule the earth. That's a short rule. Because people start sinning again, don't they? And they do. Everyone does what was right in his own eyes, which was evil. And they all did evil. Now we have a third moving of the Holy Spirit over waters. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. <coughs> which speaks of a new creation that God is forming. A new humanity, which is going to be birthed through the person of Jesus Christ. And there's going to be a new creation, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and Jesus is the ruler over it all. And people are going to be born into his kingdom, and we're born again by water and what? Spirit and what? You think all that language is just happens to be there it's all related and so what we have is that the spirit comes upon jesus like a dove and to a person who was reading this they would say creation genesis the flood oh god must be creating something new he's giving us another start he's giving us another chance and it's god's doing say it's god's doing so the holy spirit comes upon jesus like a dove so this connects Jesus' baptism with the flood. The flood, by the way, is a symbol of baptism. Did you know that? You knew that from 1 Peter, don't you? Didn't you know that? It says that in 1 Peter 3. That through the flood, God saved eight people, it says in 1 Peter 3. And it says, and now, baptism saves. That's what Peter says. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just the act, but he says, in a sense, Jesus is baptized, and that's a picture of a resurrection, his death and his resurrection, and we're saved through that. So he could, Luke is connecting all this together for us. So Jesus gets the Spirit in a special way, and that begins the end of the age. And the end of the age is coming to a close, and there's a new age, a kingdom is coming, and we can be part of that. Okay? Now it says it came upon him like a dove in bodily form. Why does it say in bodily form? Probably what Luke wants us to realize is that this isn't a vision. This isn't just something that you sort of see in a vision, but it really didn't happen. Like Peter has a vision, and he sees a sheet coming down. Well, a sheet really didn't come down. It was just a vision of a sheet coming down. So he uses that phrase in bodily form to say, this wasn't a vision, this actually happened. The real Holy Spirit came upon Jesus just like he came upon the face of the waters in Genesis and just like he came upon the ark. And so this really happened. And then we have this third event. Look at verse 22. It says, and a voice came from heaven. A voice came from heaven. And the voice spoke. 
Who did the voice speak to? It spoke to Jesus. You, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Notice back in 21, he prayed to the father and the father responded and spoke to him. And this may give us some indication of what that prayer was. Jesus may have said, Father, am I to represent you now? And he said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We're not sure exactly uh, what Jesus' prayer was. But this is a combination. This is a quote, actually. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased is a quote from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, verse 1. But we won't turn there. We could turn there and spend some time there, but we won't. But I will tell you what Psalm 2 is about. Psalm 2 is about God choosing a king, King David. And when a king of Israel was coronated, he had to be anointed. And a prophet anointed him with oil, which represented the Holy Spirit coming upon that king and empowering that king to do business, to do God's business. And then God declared the king to be his son. God says to King David, you are my son. Which means, in that context, you will be my representative on earth. You will speak for me when... You speak, it's the same as if I speak. You will be my ambassador. And so God empowers the king. Now, what happens here? Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. It comes upon him. And God says, you're my son, which means, in this context, you're the king. You're the new King David. You're the one who's going to set up a new age, a new kingdom. And you will be my representative. You're my son. The phrase in whom I'm well pleased, comes from Isaiah 42.1. And uh, in this case, God says, uh, you're my approved one. You're the one that I have approved. And the way you know that I've approved you is that I've anointed you with the Holy Spirit. And you can go back and look at those verses, and they're very important verses. But I want you to look over at Luke 4. Luke 4. Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's empowered to be the king, and he's declared to be the king. He's declared to be the son. Now, in Luke 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue somewhere around verse 17, and he picks up the book of Isaiah. And look what he says. He found the place in Isaiah where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach to speak good news speak on behalf of whom on behalf of God good news see good news to whom to the poor he has sent me on behalf of God to heal the brokenhearted on behalf of God to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and all eyes were on him in the synagogue and he began to say, watch this, today this scripture is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. Now how could it be fulfilled? When did God anoint him? See in verse 18, the spirit of God is upon me and he's anointing me. When did that happen? At his baptism. 
See, so that's what he's saying. He is affirming that at his baptism, God anointed him and empowered him for the office of being the reigning Lord of this universe. So when he talks about being his son, he is his son in the fact that he has a special relationship with God. But also he's his son in the sense that he represents God on earth as God's king. Now, interestingly, the last time we saw Jesus, prior to his baptism, do you remember when that was? When was his first time he came out publicly? When he was 12 years old. And when he was 12 years old, he went into the temple, and he sat down with the scholars, and his parents finally found him three days later, and he said, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? At that, on that scene, he called God my father. At the age of 30, when Jesus is baptized, the father calls Jesus my son. Someone said to me, when was Jesus aware of who he really was? Was there a time when he sort of realized that he was special, that he realized he was the son of God? I think he realized it when he was 12. He said, God's my father. At the age of 30, the father confirmed it. And he said, you're my son. How did he confirm it? The Holy Spirit coming upon him in his fullness. And the voice coming from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. So what we have here is we have... Uh, the baptism of Jesus. And he says, I'm well pleased. You are approved of me. You are my son. Now, look at the genealogy. <laughs> now, this is very interesting. From verses 23 through 38, we have 77 names. And the interesting thing about these names is that over 30 of them are not even mentioned in the Old Testament. So when Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus, he gives names that you can't find any place else in the Bible except right in this verse. So I can read this genealogy to you, and guess what? It won't mean a thing. I don't even know who these people are. And not only that, it's a pronunciation nightmare. <laughs> Especially for me, as you understand Somebody who never learned to read through uh, the use of phonics. <laughs> but <laughs> I want you to look at verse 23. Now, Jesus began his ministry at about the age of 30. Now, that's pretty good information. It sort of puts things in a, in a time frame, just like verse 1 did for John the Baptist. Being, and then we have a parenthesis. As was supposed, the son of Joseph. Now, notice it says, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. He really wasn't Joseph's son. Whose son was it? God. Well, you're right. The verse right before that says, he's God's son. Okay? So now what he does is he is going to give us a genealogy, and we have a real problem here. Because Luke's genealogy 
and Matthew's genealogy do not jive. <laughs> they don't compare. In other words, if you look at the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel and you look at the genealogy in Luke's gospel, they don't match. And so that has led some Bible scholars to say, well, Luke's genealogy is Jesus' genealogy through his mother Mary. And Matthew's genealogy is through his father, legal father, his adopted father, however you want to say it, stepfather, Joseph. Uh, Luke's genealogy is his biological genealogy. These were his real relatives. Uh, Matthew's genealogy was his legal genealogy. It takes him back and uh, shows that he should be Messiah. Uh, I wish I could say that's the case. That is just simply not the case. It doesn't work out. Okay, it doesn't work out. So we. So what does it? So what are we going to do with it? Well, we're not going to do anything with it. You see, most Christians they always want to sort of harmonize everything. They want to put Matthew in with Luke and, and make it all, you know, interconnect with seamless, with no difficulties, uh, but it doesn't work out this way. In fact, I don't like harmonization at all. Harmonization means you take Luke and Matthew and Mark and John and try to put them together into a single scenario. It just doesn't work that way. If uh, Matthew wanted to put information that's only in Luke in his gospel, guess what he would have done? He'd have put it in. But he left a lot of stuff out. Matthew leaves a lot of stuff out of his gospel that's in Luke, and Luke leaves a lot of stuff out of his gospel that's in Mark. Why did they do that? I don't know why they did it, but they did it and they had a reason for it. They're going to write in a certain way, and they're giving you the information that they want. And these two genealogies just don't jive. So I don't know why Matthew chose the... This is obviously not Jesus' full genealogy. There's only 77 names. I mean, if you go back to my ancestors, it would go way back, I would assume, unless I came from outer space, it would go back <laughs> thousands of years, and it would be more than 77 names, and it would be more than 77 names for you. So Luke chooses certain 77 names, and Matthew chooses a certain, 70, certain names, and that's just the way it is. So there's 77 names, and about 30 of these don't appear in Matthew, so I don't know what to make of it. So we're not going to make anything of it. Okay? What I want you to notice is that Luke does give us a genealogy of Jesus. And he doesn't give us a genealogy of John the Baptist. And that's significant. Why doesn't he give us the genealogy of John the Baptist? Because he's not the king. He's not the Messiah. Jesus is the king, he is the Messiah, he's been declared the son of God. And so what he does, he's going to say, Jesus Christ, son of Joseph, son of Heli, and he's going to go all the way down through all of these genealogies until he gets all the way down to verse 38. Verse 38. And here's the reason Luke gives us the genealogy. In 38, Adam is called, it says, son of Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, who is Son of God. And in verse 22, Jesus is called Son of God. So what he's going to do, he's going to link Jesus as Son of God to Adam as the Son of God. Just as Adam had a unique relationship with, Jesus, with, with God the Father, so Jesus has a unique relationship with God the Father. Just as Adam was the 
head of the human race that eventually fell. So Jesus will be the head of a human race that will not fall. He will be the head of a new humanity. And that's what he's going to talk about. So Jesus is the last Adam. We had a first Adam in verse 38, and we have a last Adam in verse 22. And both are uniquely the Son of God. Also, Luke's genealogy goes back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy only goes back to King David. Which is interesting, isn't it? Now, why is that? Because Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is the hope for the nation of Israel. But Luke wants, us to, show, wants to show us that Jesus is the hope for for the whole world, not only Jews, but also Gentiles. So he goes way back before Israel had ever birthed, and he goes back to Adam and the whole creation. So Jesus is the Savior of the entire world. And that's what he's doing here. He's just trying to show you these, these uh, connections so that you will realize that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he is the fountainhead of an entire new humanity. And uh, this new humanity, we're born into this kingdom and into his family through the new birth and we will inherit the kingdom at the resurrection and at the resurrection Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to raise us from the dead and we'll be given new bodies and we will inherit the earth and this is what Jesus is trying to accomplish this is what God's accomplishing through Jesus just as God created the first Adam and Adam is to have dominion over the earth. So he creates the last Adam who will have dominion over the earth. And there will never be another fall because our bodies will be glorified bodies. They'll be resurrected bodies. And so for Jesus to be the head of this new humanity, he too had to have that kind of a body. And so he dies and he's raised from the dead, never to be able to die again, never to be able to sin although he was able, possibly able to sin when he was in his human body, never able to sin. I didn't say he sinned. I said it, has, it may have had the capacity or attempted to be sent to sin. And, uh, but he will now, he will be the new Adam, and he will have an entire, well, there will be a new humanity, all that serves God, for the glory of God. And we'll be just like him. Now what happens in chapter 4, look at this. Jesus is then dri driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. You see that? And he has what's called the first temptation. The first temptation. And look what that temptation is in verse 3. And the devil said to him, If you are the what? See, that's what this whole theme is. The whole theme is about the Son of God. Jesus, in verse 22, is declared the Son of God. He's linked all the way back to Adam in verse 38, who's called the Son of God. Jesus is the last Adam. And so what happens as this new Adam, as this last Adam, the first thing that happens is that he is tempted by the Satan, by Satan just as Satan tempted the first Adam. And how does he tempt him? He says, if you're the Son of God, or since you're the Son of God, do what? It is a temptation with food. And how was the first Adam tempted? With food. 
And so what's going to happen is that the second atom, or this last atom, will go through the same course that the first atom did. But he'll come out victorious, and he'll seal our fate for eternity as a new humanity in the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to pick up next week with the temptation of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture. Help us to try to understand what Luke's doing here, how he's laying out this format for us. Uh, that Jesus is the last Adam. He is the fountainhead of a new race of which we are part. A race that will, <coughs> will bear your image just as you breathed into Adam the breath of life and you gave Adam the spirit and animated him. So, Lord, you will breathe, you breathe into us the breath of life. And we become part of that new creation. If any man be in Christ, the old things have passed away. He is a new creation. All things are made new. Help us, Lord, to understand that as we go through our life this week. Help us to, be, to represent Christ, to be followers of the King, to live a godly life. May people see a difference in us. May we, too, have that unique relationship with you as Jesus did because we, too, are indwelt by the Spirit. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.